Welcome to the Full Catastrophe Parenting Podcast, where we try to find calm in the chaos, magic in the mess, and strength in the struggle. It's been a while, but we're back at it, and we're super excited about our next guest. Linda Brown is a filmmaker with a special interest in family and generational trauma. Her recent movie, You See Me, is an autobiographical documentary taking a deep dive into the complexities of family dynamics, imperfect parents, and lasting legacies. Linda and I connected through the Trauma Therapist Project over the issue of what she calls the gray area that no one likes to talk about in families, that our parents can be flawed and we can love them at the same time. Linda is a recipient of a Kodak Vision Award for Cinematography, a Kodak Education Award, and a Fulbright Scholar. She received an MFA degree from Temple University and studied cinematography at the American Film Institute. Her credits include Lucky Bastard, Showtime's Women, Stories of Passion, Trust Dance, and Walking to Waldheim with Doris Roberts. Her documentary, Your Favorite, won recognition at Athens International and the American Film Festivals. Brown's latest documentary, You See Me, received a USC Humanities Research Grant and has screened nationally and internationally at many film festivals. She has taught at AFI, City University of Hong Kong, Temple University, Maine Media Workshops, Multimedia University Malaysia, and the Red Sea Institute of Cinematic Arts in Jordan. Apologize for that. She is an associate professor and a head of cinematography at USC School of Cinematic Arts. So welcome, Linda. That's Thank quite you. an impressive nice. resume. That is it's nice to be here. So when, when it's red, I just think, who is that person? <laughs> I know. It's amazing what you can accomplish. When it's all over compacted lifetime, together, though. it's like I did all that. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah. me tired. <laughs> <laughs> you must be tired. Are you? <laughs> no. That's good. That's good. No. So I'm curious with all the the work that you've done in the past with your filmmaking, what Mm -hmm. was it that drew you to do this autobiographical family? um, You see me movie. Mm -hmm. Well, as you mentioned, I tried to make, I made a documentary earlier in my career where I tried to address some of the same issues that I eventually addressed in this film, but my parents were younger. I was younger. I wasn't as, confident as a, of a filmmaker. And so it felt unsatisfying to me. And then what happened was uh, I kind of had my own life. My parents were retired, but my parents were both pretty healthy. And then suddenly I get a phone call, that dreaded phone call you get late at night where, you know, as your parents get older. Um, my sister called and said that my father had a stroke. And I really, when I went back East, because I, I live in LA, um, what I, my feeling was, I don't know what to do. I'm, and I'm a doer. So how, what should I do? So I thought, well, my dad has some old cameras, video cameras, and I will record what's occurring. And I thought of it as his recovery from the stroke. And then we'll have these videos to look at when he is recovered. But it didn't turn out like that. It's um, he he didn't get better, and then the film kept evolving from one thing to the next. And um, I guess it was that I, you know, I think that if we don't know who we are, we're never. There's an endless question of who are we, and and why do we do what we do. Why do I make the choices that I make? Why am I so interested in this? Why am I curious about that? And it felt to me always that a lot of that was driven by my family, my family history, and I needed to figure that out. It was just something that always lived in me. Yeah. And I remember when we were chatting earlier that you said you've always been a why person. Yeah. Why? It drives my therapist crazy. Yeah. Well, I bet. And and as I watched the movie a second time and I was able to see the different um, dynamics with all of your siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remembered that you said um, 
and I wrote this down. You said, maybe I could learn to be more like my mom and just accept things. Mm -hmm. And um, I can totally relate to that, by the way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, um, yeah, doesn't it seem like that's how it is? We've got our family members that are more accepting, but some of us, we just just have to turn every stone over and like go where that takes us. Right. Mm-hmm. And for you, what, what, what was, what were those things? Wow. Um, well, one of the things was why, why does life seem hard for me sometimes? Yeah. And part of it was that in this whole process, um, I found out that my father probably had a learning disability. I have a learning disability. And when I say learning disability, people get really frightened. And and really the way I see that is that um, certain people learn, their strength is in a certain modality. And when that modality is very far off on the spectrum, we then identify that as a disability. uh, We could turn that phrase around and we could say, it's an ability to be really, to be a good visual learner, Mm -hmm. something like that. But um, I identify, my dad and I just always got along. We were doers. We did things. We liked spending time together. We like to fish. We like to fish a lot. And um, I just needed to understand what drove him. And what out of those parts of him were also those drove me. And so if I understood him better, maybe I could understand myself better. Yeah. It sounds then like you really did identify with him pretty strongly, you know, oh, yes. yourself. Yeah. We, we were, bu- we were buddies. It just was yeah. easy, really easy for us um, to spend time together, you know? Um, and we didn't talk a lot when we spent time together. We didn't do a lot of talking. It was just, it, it, it did. We didn't need to, we just kind of, we got each other, that kind of thing. And you could um, sit in the fishing boat for long periods of time, not talk, but you had a comfortable silence with each other. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because also I think because of being a tomboy and I was sharing this with, with Chris when, when we were having a conversation earlier was he I would sit in the car or I would sit on the fishing boat with him. And if he had had a fight with my mother, who was really close with my older sister, Sue, my dad would say things like those women, they're going to drive me crazy. And I would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not identifying with those women at all. Just identifying as I get you, I'm your buddy, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that, that lasted until I guess like high school, you know, and then you start like disassociating with that that kind of identity. And then it became, and Chris and I talked about this, then it became, what is my relationship with my father? I'm not going to continue to be his buddy. And it, it, I, I felt that he did not know how to relate to us as women, mm. teenage girl, women. Yeah. And um, there were, there was a time there. I remember in my teenage years where my dad always had these dreams and wanted to talk about his hopes and his dreams. And I remembered him telling me about them once and my coming to the recognition that, or the acknowledgement of myself that it's like, he should be having these conversations with my mother. Uh-huh. You know, that, that a husband, that's what, that's what partners do. They, they share each other, they share their fears and their dreams and their hopes. And because my mother was like, she had a certain limit for that. And then she would go, okay, that's enough. I'm done with listening to, to it. And, but he wasn't done with it. So then I became that. And that was a, as a young woman, that was an uncomfortable feeling for me. Like, no. Uh Uh-huh. And this happened at about high school. You said you kind of pulled back from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because what he needed to do was, was move into the next phase of our maturing yeah. and he wasn't able to do that. Yeah. Well, let me, let me um, go back to your movie. The, your, my favorite or mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Yeah. And your so that favorite. Your, your favorite. favorite, right. And that movie is about you trying to get your dad to admit that you were his favorite. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you never were able to do that. Mm-mm. Not only did I try to get him to do that, but I started to get into this which I really explore it in, in You See Me, which is why are you comfortable with us talking about feelings? 
Mm. Why do you turn away with from things when we tried when we're emotional? And there in that film, he there's a moment in that film where he is very vulnerable and admits, I don't know why I'm just uncomfortable. And it was interesting because many of the audience of that film actually felt sympathy for my asking him this question because I seemed, how can I say, poised because I was the one with the camera and I was the one controlling the visuals. And there he was kind of awkward in the movie. And so when I felt finally relished in, oh, good, I finally asked him this question, the audience really were like, oh, you shouldn't have done that to this poor guy. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be like this. You were supposed to to um, side with me, right? Yeah, yeah. But but they didn't. And so those are the moments in making a film and being a filmmaker that I find pretty fascinating because you you realize you're, sometimes the movie and the audience takes your point of view and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. And so when you're making a film, you need to be really mindful of that. Like, who are you representing? And especially in You See Me, where I took on not just my mother and my father, but also my siblings' point of view. Yeah. You know, it, it could have gotten very one-sided. And that wasn't my intention. My intention wasn't to say my view of this is the right view. It's just to, it was just to really say, I only, I can only speak of my view. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was done really poignantly um, because it was obvious as I watched that everybody had their own little nuance Mm -hmm. and your brother seemed like a typical guy, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, um, well, I suppose, you know, growing up with a bunch of females, you know, he had his own role. But um, but I did think it was really interesting, the pivotal p- part of the movie where um, he's giving his um, he's giving a, a talk at it. Was it the 50th wedding anniversary mm-hmm. at, at his and your mom's 50th wedding anniversary? And he basically said, I'm I'm glad that I um, uh what was it? I'm glad that I put my children through college. Yes. Instead of talking about his relationship with my mother, he says, the most important thing to me is education. And we were kind of looking at him like, why are you talking about education at this anniversary <laughs> celebration? And he goes, I didn't get to, I didn't get it. And my kids did. And then he sits down yeah. <laughs> looking at him. And it was so, I mean, that was important to him. But it was not the place to be having that speech, right? That was yeah. that was a speech you have at your your child's graduation party, not your anniversary celebration. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was my dad, right? And you know what? If he had a learning disability, um, that would have made total sense because you know you're overwhelmed and you've got all these eyes upon you, and you're like, oh, what do I say? You know, it kind of reminds me of. Did you ever see Bob Dylan get interviewed? <laughs> No, Bob Dylan is very much like that. He just is sort of, he's so uncomfortable in front of the camera. He kind of like just kind of shuts everything down. Everyone knows that he's this brilliant musician, right. Right. And songwriter, but, um, but anyway, and then, so there, so there was that, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the way that the movie unfolded and the relationship that you had with, you know, your mother. Mm -hmm. And then there was this really I think like I got kind of goosebumps toward the end of the movie where having watched your father give that presentation at their wedding anniversary, then later on you find this, this, this set of tapes, this Mm -hmm. set of what you thought were old Christmas tapes that were taped over, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You share a little bit about that experience. Well, in the film, I even talk about how many times I tried to finish the film. But again, I was having the experience that I had in the earlier film, which is this doesn't feel finished. It doesn't feel like I get any further in this film, maybe just a little bit further than I got in my original film. And so I remember calling all my siblings, which I did regularly and said, "Okay, I'm going to lock this film. And I need to know that because I had been gathering all our family videos and making copies of them and looking at them regularly. I knew all the home movies because they were much more precious and I had seen them multiple times. Um, and so I kept calling my siblings and saying, okay, I'm really finishing the movie this time. 
So if you have any other tapes to send me, please send the tapes so that I know that I have all the footage that I have that I can work with. Right. And my brother, I think he was in the middle of his divorce. And so he was moving off the, to live off the grid or something like that. And he said, I do have some tapes that you may not have seen. They're in my attic, but I think water got on them or something, but I'll send them to you. And then I said, okay, yeah, send them to me right away. And he said, but it costs a lot of money to send stuff. I said, I'll reimburse you. Don't worry. I'll send them to you. And so I get them. And um, I just thought, I know I've seen all these. So it's a Saturday night. It was during spring break and I'm watching it. And all of a sudden this tape comes up that starts out being uh, like a New Year's Eve or a Christmas celebration. And then my father interrupts and he tapes over it. And what he had done is one weekend when he was in the house by himself, he pulled out his camera and he starts doing this whole self-interview where he shares with the camera a lot of his feelings that he couldn't express to any of us when he was alive. And I was just going to say, how, old was, he, how old was he at the time? Do you know? You got a guess roughly? In his 60s, late 60s, okay. early 70s. Wow. Okay. And then he just, and he says in them, and right in the tape, maybe you'll see these when I'm gone. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my God. And so I immediately thought, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this. Because and you, you I kept saw thinking, them when he was gone, right? I mean, you found right. them after he had passed away. Yeah. Right. How and prophetic. so I, I thought to myself, okay, do I call my sister Nancy, who I'm close with, or do I call my editor? Do I call my sister? Or do I call my editor? And I don't remember who I called first, but whoever it was, I told the other one, it was I called them first, right? But I called my editor and he said, okay, we're not locking the picture. We're not ending the picture. Send them to me overnight express and let me take a look at them. And I sent them to him and he goes, okay, we've, we've got a, we've got a new ending. Now, the funny thing about this is we did not change all that many things in the film before that new ending. Like I already had the footage in of the uh, anniversary party where he says all this stuff, right. That Uh we just talked about. Right. And so my editor said, I said to him, Oh my God, I can't believe we're going to have to re-edit this film. And he looked at the footage and he said, we just have to change a very few things, which I thought was really interesting that it wasn't a whole reworking of the film, that the film was in its place. And this just was the real final ending that I can finally let go of. I don't have to go back and make this film again. Right. Right. And, um, He admitted a lot of things about the, you know, there are a lot of euphemisms that he uses. He doesn't use the word abuse. He just says, I treated you in ways that were not good. A lot of women wouldn't have put up with it. Actually, I recognize that because when I would refer to it with my editor, I would refer to it with the euphemisms and say, you know, my dad had a bad temper. And finally, my editor said to me one time, do you consider your, did you consider your dad abusive? And I was like, no, not really. And it yeah. took me a long time, even though in my mind I knew, but there's something about saying those words out loud. Right. And, and I had to do that. And I even admit in my narration, it was awkward and uncomfortable for me to say it. And I was worried that when I did use those words that my family would then not be comfortable with me saying that. But how were they? they Pardon me? How were they when you uh, use those words? Well, it was interesting because um, my sister Nancy, as I said, we talked a lot and she's a therapist, so she was fine with it. My brother didn't say anything specifically about those words. I was concerned about my sister, Sue, um, and I shared this with Chris. I sent her the tape, the the cut film before I released it because I had to get all their approval and their signatures, which I totally was in line with. I, I didn't want anything out there that they wouldn't feel comfortable with. And of course, my sister didn't look at it immediately. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, she's going to sue me. She's got a lawyer. She's got all this stuff. But that's that was all my fiction story that I made up. She called me a week later and she said, you know, I think the film is not my experience. It's your experience, but I, I think it's good. 
So they were all fine with it. And I did tell Chris that my mom gave me the biggest compliment when she saw the final uh, cut. And she said to me, it's very honest. And I just mm. thought, I don't think I could get a better compliment than that. No, that's so that meant a lot to me. Very good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, you know, back to your mom, when you showed her the, the footage that you, that you found that the mystery footage that popped up out of nowhere. Right. Um, uh, I have to say, um, it really touched me watching her watch the the the, the <clears throat> film right. because I was I could see how touched that she was, and she said, "I wish she could have told me these things when he was still alive." Right. I mean, I'm getting like kind of choked up as I think about that because, I mean, that kind of gets to what we're talking about is this gray area where, you know, I think society tends to want to say, you know, when you use the word abuse. Mm-hmm. You think horrible person, you know, oh, right. you know, and, and the reality is much more um, of the gray area people mm-hmm. and, and Scott actually brought up being a guy <laughs> that, you know, males of that generation had these expectations that they were trying to live up to. Mm-hmm. And I kind of use like the images of John Wayne Mm-hmm. James Bond, you know, all these ultra macho dudes who solved problems with their fists, meant mm-hmm. a few words, you know, didn't admit to any vulnerability, didn't make mistakes, you know, that kind of thing. And there right. were a lot of guys who grew up in that generation looking to those images. Oh, that's the way I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And especially men who didn't necessarily have a father around. It's right. you have an actual human male right. to look up to. It's like... It's just what's out there in the entertainment and, and the news. Yeah. So, you know, and the guys get trapped by that because they, they expect that that's the way I'm supposed to be. And they're completely uncomfortable being vulnerable with their feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's just very unfortunate. It really is. Right. Yeah. 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 And yeah, it, was, it was interesting watching my mom. She really, I, you know, I've seen my mom cry, but she really, there was something very soulful about that yes. experience to share that. And I felt so, I had such mixed feelings. I felt so glad to be able to give her that gift. Yeah. And a part of me felt how pained she was also. Yes. It, it was really bittersweet, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with the way that he he died. I mean, it was... Ugh. You know, yeah. I mean, it seemed like she kept everybody and, and you and you bring this up throughout the whole movie. You know, everyone's looking for that sort of sense of completion or coming together or admitting or, you know, like what are like we all kind of look to have our lives wrapped up in this, you know, mm-hmm. pretty package. Right. And mm-hmm. and in and, and work working in um, the hospital and, and companioning families and patients, you, it, that's never how it is. Nobody right. ever feels it's the right time and it you know be- the beautiful death never happens i mean it's like hollywood everyone- ending right hollywood ending, yes. <laughs> i know yeah so so kudos to <laughs> to not having the hollywood ending because right. you left it i mean yeah we were all hanging kind of you know and and your family was sort of trying to make sense of out of how things were and um yeah uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that was your, the, the point of the whole movie is that, you know, this is, this is life, right? It's complicated. Right. right. Or, or the notion that what is a good ending? You know, we have this, like this notion of, and, you know, I jokingly say Hollywood ending, but, but we do all think that way. And we'd like to think, oh, and he just died peacefully in his sleep and all that kind of stuff. And yet my father's death was just like his life. Yeah. Filled with conflict, chaos, traumatic, big, bold, you know, um, and unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how did we, how do, how do I, you know, my sister often says to me, um, if you think about it, he, he died the way he lived. Yeah. You know, he didn't have a, a peaceful life. He didn't make, um, he, it was always, he felt tortured to me and the torture in getting back to, 
you know, his history was he just never felt he deserved love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just, and it all came from the stuff he had with his mother. I remember as a kid, I re- as a teenager, when I got my driving license, driving license, I remember I got drunk and I had an accident and my father read it as you don't love me enough. And it's like, what does that have to do with, you know, what I did, but yeah. it was, it always got read like that. Like, if you love me more, this wouldn't have happened. If you love me more, that wouldn't have happened. And so he read so much. His life was so tainted with this notion that he had of, he did that, you know, when he started having this obsession with his dementia, but we didn't realize what it was of my mother has a boyfriend and he got obsessed with this idea that she had a boyfriend. I was like, yeah, once again, he doesn't deserve to have her love. He's got it. He's fantasizing that, he, that she has this boyfriend now. Yeah. And I think that probably in my mind, the way I understood it was when he was young and healthy, that probably was always an idea that he lived with, but he could, he could hide it in his work and his energy and staying busy. And I've got a family to raise and support. And then as he got older and sicker and more frail, I think those fears started to surface and And they no longer were hidden fears. They became his reality. And then mixed up with the dementia he he had me convinced at one point. I didn't believe my mother had a boyfriend, but I had a long conversation with once and I left and I thought, maybe he's right. You know, I mean, he was so he just so believed it in his heart. Wow. that he, he could convince almost he convinced me. You know, but I think it was he was tortured. I wondered if uh, when he did kind of that uh, self-interview that you found like the Christmas tape if it was a couple of things going on there, you know, as he got older, like you say, he didn't have the energy to suppress Mm -hmm. those feelings anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that he was by himself and he didn't Mm -hmm. have to face anybody. That's right. He didn't have to be accountable to an actual human being about his vulnerabilities. That's right. Um, You know, and just at, at that point in your life, it's like, you kind of know your own mortality is, you know, not too far away and you kind of want to set things right. You want to somehow, you know, you know, kind of, uh, you know, get out those hard feelings or whatever, you know, but I think there was a multitude of things going on there. Right. It's interesting that you say that Scott, because it was like you, he felt the urgency to do it and record it. Yeah. And put it in a place that maybe we'd find it. Right. So he like had thought about all those things so that there were there was this deep need in him to to want to express those things but At you're least right he feel good he felt good getting it out right but yeah. he did it in his own way mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. the, the 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 way you just described it okay i did it but i'm going to do it. and he you know i have to say this he is a bit of a performer too i kind of got that impression yeah he 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 had a you know a, a certain charm about the way he could he liked to talk he liked to have attention that kind of thing um and if you remember in the film he starts out where he's talking to the camera when they're on vacation and so we kind of bookend it with then he ends it up talking to the camera again in another way and so there's this whole thing about visuals and me and being a filmmaker and recording things but what does it mean to interview yourself versus inter- have someone else interview you and me on the boat doing my complaining to the camera when I self-interview myself so there's all those themes that I really had fun playing around with in terms of being a visual person and being a filmmaker that for me were was very satisfying yeah it almost sounds like you've embraced piece of your father in yourself. Of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, um, I mean, I don't know to answer your original question to me, why did I have to do it in some unknown way? And I'm sorry for interrupting. No, that's fine. That's, that's what I was doing. And maybe I didn't even know what I was doing, but it's just, I don't know. I'm driven to do this. Yes. I was going to talk too about you when you talked about the process, you asked everybody for the tapes 
it sounded like it developed very organically, mm-hmm. you know, your reasons and thoughts about it kind of changes. You went along, but mm-hmm. you apparently were very trusting of your instincts too, as a filmmaker and as a mm-hmm. storyteller, it's mm-hmm. like you, you started with this big idea and then it just sort of slowly kind of got molded and melded until finally mm-hmm. it was. And, and I feel very good for you that you did find those tapes because it <laughs> did oh. provide that ending. I think you were looking for <laughs> The other thing was I was working on this when I was on sabbatical and then I was supposed to be using it for promotion at my work. And so everybody was like, you've got to finish that film. You've got to. (laughs) So there was all this pressure for me, not just from my own sense of completion and closure, but then there were these outside forces. And I'm like, why did I ever bring this up at school? Now I'm getting pressure from them. And so I even talk about it in the film, like, I'm not ready to, this doesn't feel like the right time to end this film, you know? And you're right. There is a lot about, you know, we make a joke in the industry, people making films, it, which is you're never finished editing a film. You just have to finish. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. when do you know in a film like this, when is it over, right? Yeah. Um, well, is it over when you get that Hollywood ending? Is it over when you say, I ran out of funding? <laughs> Yeah. And I'm getting what what, what is it over, you know? Yeah. And I bet there's a sense of not wanting it to ever be over in a way. I mean, you kind of do, but you I mean the process is where the where the beauty is, right? Right. It it is a little bit like being in therapy, which is like it was painful to go through it, but now I'm on the other side. And then you kind of look around and go, what what next? Yeah. No, now, now what, you know, and I think there's also a sense of, can you enjoy, can you relish in what your accomplishment was, you know, because when you're a doer, it's like, what am I doing next? And the sense of like, this was good. This was, this is important to me. This was a labor of love for me that, um, that I needed to, to, to do. Yeah. It seems like it, it's, it's been cathartic. Well, that's another thing. It's like, this is a very personal kind of, you know, very intimate story right. that you've put out there to the world beyond yeah. your family. Right. You know, yeah. how's that? Well, because I was the one doing it. I kind of was used to doing that. The person who um, I think it was a little harder for was I did. I traveled a lot with the film at the festival screenings and we did a lot of Q and A's and my sister, Nancy, when I was back East at festivals, she would travel with me because she lives on the East coast. Um, And I remember the first time she stood up in front of an audience, she looked at me before and she goes, I never thought about what it was going to feel like for all these people to know our personal family history. Yeah. And so I looked at her and I said, you're going to think about it now. <laughs> I was like, we're ready to, to face the audience. And she goes, it just dawned on me. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm like, well, just throw it to me, I guess then, you know, because I felt like I didn't want to put her on the spot, but I kind of thought she would have thought of that before that moment. But um, yeah, I was okay with it because I had been Showing it, well, the most important thing for me was that my family was okay with it. When I knew I got their permission, it was like, okay, I can, I can handle this with other people. What I wasn't prepared for, though, was um, that audience members started sharing very personal things about their families with me at these screenings, these post, uh, this Q&A sessions at the screenings, because it was bringing up a lot of stuff. Remember, they see the film, yeah. they're not really processing it, they're probably running off the emotional energy that they have at that point. And so people are raising their hands and saying things like, I've never shared this with my husband, but, and then, and I was like, I thought, I'm not a therapist. I I don't know, you know, if, if I can handle their issues or there would often be parties after the screenings, like you have your Q and A and then there's a little get together reception. So after a couple of drinks, people then would come up to me and say like, I've never shared this with anyone, but you know, crazy things like I actually raised my niece and pretended it was my daughter and I've never told anyone. I was like, oh, okay, well, now I know, you know. So I knew that 
many people have different types of secrets in their family and they carry this for years and it's such a burden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, if they try to share it with other people, they get pressure often from within the family. Like you can't share this now. You can't rock the boat because it's going to be this information, this secret will be, will create too much pain for too many people within our family for you to say it. So just keep it a secret. And yet that puts such um, responsibility on that person who was the one like my father who wanted to share yeah. their feelings with other people and what they were wanted to express it. Um, and so there was that analogy between people wanting to share secrets. My dad wants to share things, but he doesn't feel comfortable sharing them. You know, yeah. now at these receptions, after a couple of glasses of wine, people got a lot more willing to share things. Sure, yeah. sure. I just think it really shows how many gray area, how many of these things, whatever the family secret is, whatever the uncomfortableness is, and it can be minor, but affect us deeply to really severe and affect us much more deeply that people just are like, well, it's not as bad as your problem. So I don't have the right to, to share it. Okay. It's not so shameful. You know, it's a a mini secret. So I, 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 it's not as bad as your problem. And that's silly because that's like, what are you going to compare shame? Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's, it's it's painful. It's not productive. It keeps us trapped. It keeps us small and hurting. Right. And there's this sense of when we share, I think, and we breathe, it's like, oh, nobody, I'm not going to die from sharing this. Right. And other people go, oh, I have a secret too. And then it's like, all of it kind of evaporates. Well, right. they're all in fear of, of some huge judgment that's going to just strike them down. Boom. You know, yeah. and yeah. they don't know what that is exactly. So they play it safe. Right. For a long time. Right. Yeah. Right. It's right. so important to know we're not alone. You know, I mean, and, and especially, you know, folks of our generation where, you know, we, you know, my my father is in his 80s and Scott's mom is in her, her 80s and, you know, they're imperfect. And it's really, you know, like it's that Hollywood ending that we were talking about before. It's like, that's not just the movies. I think social media tries to present that. Oh, yeah. Everyone wants a simple answer or a simple solution to complex situations. Or a tidy ending. And complex people. And I mean, you know, I found your father to be such an endearing man, despite all of, you know, mm-hmm. the things that you shared about him, him being abusive and, and having a temper and, um, and your mom being a, you know, a, a sweet woman too, but, you know, she certainly had her sort of little, you know, hangups here and there. And that's, that's all families, isn't it? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. we all do the best with what we have. And um, there was one part in there where I think you were interviewing your sister, Sue, and she mm-hmm. said, um, regarding your father, he knew us, all our strengths, all our weaknesses, and he loved us regardless. And then you said, how do you know that? And, and then she paused and she said, I don't know. Right. I mean, th- that's how a lot of us live our lives, right? Right. right. I and mean, that, you just it's have interesting. A, it's yeah. Mm-hmm, you have a felt sense that you can't quite put your finger on. Right. And even though our parents might have, you know, a temper or might be, you know, narcissistic or whatever, like everyone's just doing the best that they can. Well, you've shown your parents everything there is to know about you to the extent that you've seen your, you know, in your great moments, your weak moments, your awful moments. And somehow they keep, you know, they keep you around. They keep uh, supporting you. They keep doing things right. for you. So that must mean something that even when I'm at my worst they're still there for me, at least, you know. Right. And I think, you know, when we label things, labeling gets kind of scary because if you say somebody's an abuser, that's the label that they carry. And then that's where the shame comes in rather than saying, you know, this is an act. This isn't the person. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And none of us want to be judged by our worst acts. Certainly I don't, you know, and 
And, and I think then that's where the secrets and the shame and all that starts to come in. You know, when I started to see my parents, not as just parents, but in relationship to their histories, yes. then, mm-hmm. and I could then say, well, you are the way you are because of your history and you're imperfect and they're imperfect and their histories are probably even a little screwier than yours is right? Mm -hmm. How could you expect them to be perfect? And yet that bond that we have as children that need, no matter what our, how our parents treat them, us, we deeply love them. That love is so deep. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. we yearn for it so deeply that we're willing to forgive almost anything to get that love from them. And then how do we, as, as adults then start to say, what you were talking about, Scott, which is they are flawed. I am flawed. We're just trying to do our best and, and really see them in, in that light. I don't know if you can do that when you're younger because we are so dependent on them in right. so many ways, not just for our physical well-being and, you know, that they provide for us financially, and, but also then the next phase of our life as young adults to really start to separate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to do that. That's why the first film that I made your favorite, I don't think I was ready for the answers that I got in this film because yeah. I don't know how I would have understood them. Right. And how I would have accepted them or whether I would have just said, this is too much. I'm shutting this film down. Whereas at this age, I'm saying, wow, this is tough, but I think I'm ready. Right. Well, and to I'm ready be able to do this. And make sense of it for my. You have enough myself. life perspective that makes sense, you know. Yes. It make... Well, and to be able to look back at your father's history, and you know, to be able to say, "Wow, he was—he never had a father. He was um, in quote unquote illegitimate child mm-hmm. um, in a in an era where nobody talked about that, Mm-mm. and and raised by." a mother who had some questionable love and he was always trying to gain, you know, look for that love from, you know, her and never got it. I mean, mm-hmm. wow. You know, we we're parenting two children who are, you know, adoptees from mm-hmm. you know another country. And that is, that never goes away. I, I mean, I can yeah, tell yeah, you yeah. Mm-hmm. that, that, that looking for, you know, the parent that never, that you never had, or that never was there for you, that just is always mm-hmm. that, that dark hole deep inside. And, um, but to, to grow up, like, you know, we adopted our kids at the age of two, but to know yeah. Yeah. into your adulthood that, you know, all the things that you, you know, you shared in your film about your father's history, that's, that's big stuff. As yeah. I just was hearing Chris mention about the, those major factors in your, your father's growing up i thought wow he almost did pretty darn well given the circumstances <laughs> you know where yeah. he came from right right things could have gone a lot more south you know he ha- he had be- I-, I sometimes we would ask that uh, our siblings we would say where did dad get his um ideas from what of what he thought was important for us growing up and the way he was going to raise his children. He was, um, he never graduated high school. He started his own business. It was very successful. He believed that all his children, male or female, should all get college degrees or post-college degrees. I mean, we're the only one of our uh, cousins in that generation that did go to college and post, you know, and postgraduate degrees. And we were like, where did he get these ideas from? It certainly wasn't within his socioeconomic group. So culturally, it wasn't part of their their mindset at all. And yet he was like dogmatic about it. This is how about this? How about this? As extensions of him, he could point to you and said, I did good there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like maybe I'm not so good at at myself, but they're part of me and they did good. And I helped make that happen. Well, and that's what he said at the wedding anniversary. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that that really speaks for for, um, you know, how proud that he was mm-hmm. to be able to do that. I mean, to have no um, to not have graduated from high school and to 
have, you know, all of his children, four children, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Go to college. I mean, that's huge. It is huge. Mm -hmm. In that in that generation. Um, And so, you know, one of the other things that really got me um, or really touched me was when um, your mom talked about them walking on the boardwalk on the shore. Now, granted, I used to live out in Philly. So like, and I've been to the shore so many times. And uh, so I'm picturing this in my mind, what it felt like to have him grab her hand when they were like young. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and did she not like to have a fun time? Like, was it hard for her to just let, let loose or. Well, I know my parents were not affectionate physically in front of other people. Right. Got it. Okay. And what she says in that situation was that she always wanted my father to like be present, be in the moment. He was always like, okay, next we're going to do this. He was the planner and stuff like that. And so she, what she's saying in that uh, interview was that it started to rain when they were planning to take a walk. And she said, normally he would be like, we should have brought an umbrella. We should have planned for this. We should have. <laughs> And so that's what she thought for sure. He's just going to say, let's go back because it's raining. And we, and he's, she said her memory was that he took her hand and he said, let's just, let's just walk in the rain. And I think what she was saying is it, I, I had him, him, the real him yeah. without all the, I have to plan and I have to do, and I have to be the man and I have to. The shoulds, the musts, the ought to. All the yep. stuff you're talking about, Scott, yep. that he just said, I'm here for you right now. And let's just be here now. Yeah. And I, that's what I said to her. I mean, I started to get choked up and I said, that's a great memory for you to have because mm-hmm. that was, that, that, that was part of him, but he rarely let himself, he rarely let himself experience that and us see that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was it, like, I would think that's what, that's the dad that I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the dad yeah. that I wanted, but it was like, but Linda, that's not the dad that you got. And you're mm-hmm. right. The It comes a full package. I don't yeah. get to, I don't get to nitpick which of the parts of the dad that I want. It's like, I want that part of him and that part of him, mm-hmm. you know, working in the film industry and reading a lot of scripts, the, the scripts that I find most fascinating or the movies that I find fascinating are the ones with characters that are very complicated. Yeah. They're, you know, it's like the best part of them is the worst part of them. And you got to love them and hate them just as the love and the hate are equal. And those are the characters that we find fascinating, you know, yes. that we're really kind of drawn. Otherwise it's like, they're good. They're good. They're good. Okay. Thank you, Disney. Thank you, Hallmark. That's nice. You right. know, but that's not my life. That's right. not the way I live day to day. That's not my experiences. And so why do we keep putting images and stories out there that don't represent the struggles that I go through on a daily basis, or you may go through on a daily basis, the struggles we have with our family, with our coworkers, with the people we love, with the people we work with. Those are the stories, whether they're fiction or documentary, that intrigue me. And that's really what drew me to being in the film industry to say, I want to see the stories that nobody else, that people are afraid to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love the, it's funny. I, I love horror movies. Like, you she know, does. I like psychological <laughs> thrillers. And like when we watched the, the series of Hannibal, like that's what I love Ooh. about it was like, this character is really likable. You know, he's a really likable, but he happens to be, you know, a cannibal and a serial killer. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about the character that really drew me in. Um, right. But so you're right. Like, I think that we are we are drawn to these these stories for sure. You know, I think we all go through our own trials and tribulations and we see movies or hear stories about people where you get to, you know, understand some of the th- things that form who they are. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. mental and emotional gymnastics they have to go through to be, you know, to have this cohesive life that they go on and do whatever they do. Right. It's sometimes admirable. Right. Like with your dad giving his background. It's like, wow, despite uh, despite everything they've gone through, they're still moving forward. They're still mm-hmm. accomplishing these things. It's sort of like, 
I don't know that I could have done that sometimes, yeah. you know? Right. Right. Yeah. To think, you know, they're coming off of the heels of the, you know, the great depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say some of the history, like even um, the folks of your grandmother's generation, mm-hmm. who were they that yeah. influenced the folks of your dad's generation? They were you know, immigrants. They came over with nothing. Right. It's funny when you, when you said, um, talked about the depression, I remember studying it in school and I came home and of course my parents, my parents were really young at that point. And I said something to my parents about the depression. And my mother said, cause she was in a family with 13 kids. So they didn't have a lot. Right. Oh, yeah. And she said, we didn't notice that there was a depression. <laughs> it was the same as every day for us. Because, you know, at school, we read about people from the, you know, stock market are jumping out of windows. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, my parents' family didn't have stocks. So to them, it was like, oh, it's just another day you go to the factory, you put in your hours, and you come home. And, you know, then during World War II, my dad was in, uh, in the service, he was in the Navy. And my mom would talk about, you know, well, we would just ration the food like we always did. You had meatless days and you had this and that. And she said, you know, other than the neighborhood boys being lost at war, it wasn't such a a big difference. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it was like, are you serious? (laughs) It was a world. And, And so it's interesting to think in terms of what their needs were and the, what they, you know, what they lived through. You're right. That, that they were able to grow as much as they even grew because their notion was my parents could barely put food on the table. You have food, you have, you have nicer clothes than I ever had. You had this or that, what more do you want? And then of course, what I wanted was emotional security. And they're like, Mm. emotional security. You want everything. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's, it's always more. So then the question is, your children, what are they going to say? You didn't give me this mom and dad, you know, right. because yeah. this is what I needed. So I don't know. I don't have children, but I can just imagine that, like, what's the next? What What is it that we're, that our generation has a deficit in providing? I don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 Like you always do the, you know, the best that you can. I know I've spoken with my sibling, you know, on occasion about like our parents and like, there are days you think that they walk on water and then there are days you think that they're like the worst parents ever. And then I say, you know what? My parent, my kids are going to say the same thing about me. (laughs) You know, I was going to say you, you bring up an interesting point. It's like, I, I haven't thought about it too deeply, but it's crossed my mind. What are my kids going to come back and tell, you know, point the finger at me about like 10 years from now? You may not want to go there. <laughs> I know. I know. What to do? Yeah. No, if, I it, can, yeah. if I can tell myself I'm already doing the best that I can. Right. What more can I do? Yeah. And have that compassion for yourself and for yeah. the people before you and just know that everyone's doing the best they can and just kind of leave it. I mean, okay. Are there some jerks in the world? Probably, you know, and, and, but they're not the ones, <laughs> they're not the ones that are writing about it, making films about it. Like, you know, I, I think this is all such important stuff to talk about. It is kind of like walking in the rain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it makes me think, because you shared with me that you do hospice work. And I, and I, I'm always curious, you know, when people are, or know that their end is near, the kinds of things that they share of regrets yeah and um admitting you know things that they did that they're not proud of things like that it must be fascinating the things that people share because it's it's like this is my last chance if i don't share it with you then yeah. it'll never get shared so mm. i can't i i i imagine that must be fascinating and at the same time wearing on you yeah the latter yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's heavy work. I mean, because I'm a lot like you are, you know, I I like to, um, I'm a doer. And when you're sitting with someone that's not going to get well, as you know, you know, well, you you were able to document it, you know, I mean, there's a part of me, I was a social worker before I did this work. And it feels good to do something like, you know, because I, it's an energy that you have to go somewhere with. Right. you know, I don't think I'm the best uh, chaplain because of I, I, I am such a doer. I mean, I'm probably not like the, the personality that typically goes into this field. I think I, I needed to do it for my mm-hmm. to kind of 
um, even out my personality because I've always been such this idealist, mm-hmm. uh, still am. And very intense with a capital I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you don't know anything about that, right? <laughs> but, um, but, the, but to be the why person, like I'm, I totally understand when you're asking why, um, it's a part of your personality that just, you can't, you can't squelch. Right. I was going to say, I feel very good for the people who watched your film. You see me because of the responses you said that you got that people started to divulge these things. Mm-hmm. Apparently they needed to see that mm-hmm. because they had such a great response. You know, they, they felt compelled to say some things that probably needed to be said. Right. And right. how wonderful for them. Right. You know, it's interesting because um, what I would say to people after we talked and stuff is there's a, a site called IMDB, Internet Movie Database, where anybody can go on. And th- if the film is listed there, people write reviews, just personal reviews, not from the newspapers and stuff. And sometimes I go back and I read the reviews <laughs> to make myself feel good if I have a bad day. Yeah. To just think this really did help people, Linda, or this was important work for people beyond you. And, and so, you know, and I think of, do I feel like getting up the energy to make another film? It's like, but, but, but this is why you entered this field because you can make those movies that, that will touch people and, and make them feel better about their experiences. And that, that whole thing that you said, we're not alone. Yeah. And that is, we're that not is... alone in our suffering. We're not alone in our doubts. You know, it's interesting as a faculty member, um, the students, I think, always see the faculty as it's like the students are insecure, but the faculty, they haven't made. And I'm like, are you serious? We're the most insecure people. <laughs> we're all really? in. Everybody's insecure. Everybody has self-doubt. Everybody thinks they should be doing better. That's yeah. just. You know, especially if you're at a school like USC, where it's like high profile and you've got to produce work and do all this stuff and everybody you turn around and they're winning awards and stuff. After a while, it's like you got to just keep doing. But there's a point also where you just say, I need to slow down and I need to relish in the work I've done. Yeah. What I've accomplished and just being there for the students sometimes, just saying to them, I don't have it together. I know I know more facts about certain things than you do. I have more experiences. But we started doing this thing at USC. It was really interesting. I watched a film the other night that's a great documentary. Uh, now I'm promoting other films. It's called Rebel Hearts. It's about the Immaculate Heart nuns who uh, left the church because they were getting involved with social concerns and the archdiocese and Los Angeles wasn't happy about it. It's a great film. But the way we did the screening was we we showed it online. And then we had a woman from the religion department who was in the film and the filmmakers were from USC. They're graduated and stuff. But we had a student be the moderator. Which I thought was, and we're doing more of that, right? And which I think is saying to the students, your experiences are valid. Now she was a grad student, so she's a little older. But to say to them, your experiences are valid also. And she's actually in a class this semester where she's working on her own documentary. But I love the idea of equalizing us to say, you, and she did a great job. And I wrote to her afterwards and I said, you know, because I know her and I said, oh, Nanny, you did such a great job as a moderator. I was really happy to see you there. And you asked these great questions to just encourage them to see that we're all struggling. We're all right. trying. We, you know, we're not, he, you're not here and we're here. Right. That's yeah. That's I, the best that's way. the fun of teaching to me. Yeah. And, and how many years have you been teaching? Yeah. How I mean, many years have you been teaching? Well, I actually have a master's degree in um, special education. So before I even got into the film industry, I was teaching middle school kids who were learning disabled. I that's wonder where I that came from. I was probably learning disabled. But then I always wanted to be in the film business. And so I went home to my family and I said, you know, I think I'm going to apply to film school. And my father said, that's for rich people. What are you, you going to do in the film industry? We don't know anybody in the film industry. And I was like, well, 
if I totally fail, I can just go back to teaching middle school kids again, right? But then I went uh, to Temple University and we, I made documentaries there. And then from there, I went to AFI and then I got involved in shooting fiction work there. And then, and then <coughs> at one point I found myself teaching at five schools part-time and trying to keep a, a shooting career. And I was getting burned out. And then finally USC approached me and said, look, we have a full-time tenured position open. Would you like to apply for that? And I said, no. You said no. You said no. Said no. And my supervisor at the time who knew me well enough, just put the bug in my ear and said, um, I'll call you back next week and ask you again if you might want to apply. And so, of course, that she she knew me to she knew me well enough to put the bug in my ear. And of course, I lay in bed at night and think, wow, how long can I continue to be shooting part time at five different places and keep a career? I was just on such a treadmill. I couldn't recognize it. I was just, you know, and then she said the one thing that she knew was really going to stick. She says, and you're not getting younger either, you know. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. So then I called her back a week later and she said, end. And I said, okay, I will apply for the tenured position. Yes. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad she was smart enough to handle me the way she did. Mm-hmm. You know, if she would have pushed me too hard, I would have pushed back. But she knew enough to just drop things in my ear and and let me struggle with them myself. But but it's a, you know, I, I'm really, it's the, my job is the right place for me to be. I really feel um, energized. I feel like um, it's right for me. I yeah. like it. It That's gives fantastic. me That's to fantastic. work on the movies I want to work on. It, get, it puts me in touch with really smart kids who challenge me, sometimes a little too much, but it's okay. They challenge me. The faculty are, you know, like any job, we don't always agree. But what I like about it is that we can, as long as we keep it, it's about the film or it's about the curriculum and not make it personal. I can fight pretty hard and then go, okay, I give up. I'll give up. I'm wrong. Well, I'm, I'm realizing we've been talking, we could probably keep talking throughout, (laughs) you know, for like the next hour, but we could, we could do monthly things, right? Like, yeah, we we could cut those trust. Well, and when you told me your sister's a therapist, I was like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) And you've got a special ed background, you know, which is what I've been doing for years. So, yeah. 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 And we, yeah, we so enjoyed it. We really enjoyed uh, the movie and you know what? We should watch it. I was just thinking my parents would probably enjoy it and we'd have a really good conversation because I'm just going to ask everybody that watches it, go on to IMDB. I'll send you the link and write a review. Because yes. when people read other people's reviews, they've actually they've actually even emailed me and said, I read somebody else's review and it resonated with me. So even the reviewers are kind of connecting with each other. OK. Oh, awesome. Wow. Yeah. So if people want to to watch the movie, right. they can go directly to your website as well. Yeah. And it's at youseememovie.com. OK. And, I'll, and we, I'll give you the link and stuff like that. And then they can find both the IMDb link because I have it on there and they can just click. I want to rent this movie. And for, I think it's four 99, they can rent the movie. Okay. Well, that sounds, wow. that sounds great. I highly it recommend does. it. Yes. And since I watched that one, I, I was, I want to see your favorite. <laughs> because I, you- and I will share this with you also the, the tape that we found of my father at the end. Yeah. And I put the clip in actually, if we did a DVD, which I think nobody's watching DVDs anymore. And they used to have the special little portions of DVD, like the behind the scenes and stuff. All right. Mm-hmm. My father actually had a segment that he devoted to each of the kids. Oh, where he talked about his memories of each of us. And they're very idiosyncratic of our personalities. Really? And then, wow. Yeah. And then he faded out. And then the one that I used in You See Me is he says, and now I'm going to do my last one. And this is for you, Nat, which he then dedicated to my mother. But he does have ones of my sister, Nancy and me <laughs> and the memories of each of us. So oh. I might eventually put those on the website. What a gift. Really? Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Was, yeah. Uh, I, I actually made copies uh, for my family and I gave it to all my family so that they'd have memories of all of that, what he said about them. 
It's almost uh, scary to think you might have missed those videos at some point. You know, they would have gotten lost in the shuffle. Yeah. With the rain and my brother's divorce and he's living off the grid and all that kind of stuff. We almost, it came that close to me never finding them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was wow. kind of wow. like, I don't believe in, I guess I'm kind of spiritual, but I don't believe in like people from the beyond, but that was spooky when I thought I was supposed to find this. You were supposed to find that. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like oh, I, funny. I totally, I was thinking that even before you said it and you know, it's when I do work with um, patients and families and I, I, I've heard way too many stories that are similar to not believe that there's some kind of connection that it continues to exist. You know um, it's really, you know, I mean, it still doesn't make loss that much e any easier, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because we still miss, you know, our loved ones when they pass, we miss all those things about them that make them special and, and that make us who we are really. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's good. Yeah. My sister asked me one time, do you miss dad? And I said, I don't think I do because he's so in me. Oh, now there are days that it's like, I hear myself saying something or I look in the mirror or I looked at my handwriting once and it's like, this is, this looks like dad's handwriting. So I, he's so in me. It's like, I don't even miss him because he's with me. All, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you recognize those parts of those people being in us yes. then they do live on, but uh, you know, of course I miss being around him and stuff, right. but, yeah. but in another way, he's there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. But thank you thank so much. You. This oh, is thank you. Like talking to family. Yeah. Yeah. This has been, it was really, easy. Yeah. Yeah. It I was. agree. It was. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing and we'll put the information on the website. You see me the film, right? I'll send That's you the fun. links to IMDB and yep. all that kind of stuff so that people will know. We'll get that all in there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank thanks you. so much, Linda. I almost don't want this conversation to end. It's been so nice talking with you. I know. Good night. Excellent. Thank you. You, you too. Care. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. If you're a struggling parent, you're welcome here. If you've ever wanted to give up but were afraid to admit it, you're welcome here. You can find full catastrophe parenting anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Just hit subscribe to get each new episode delivered directly to your inbox. We also have a website, fullcatastropheparenting.com, where you can get in touch with what we're doing. Thank you for listening. In the meantime, embrace the catastrophe.